Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I welcome to the podcast Dr. Vicky Gibson to discuss frailty. Vicky is a consultant geriatrician in Hawke's Bay. She moved to New Zealand in February 2022, having worked and trained in Newcastle in the UK prior to her move. Her interests lie in both frailty and in perioperative medicine. In the UK, she was part of a front door frailty team that completed comprehensive geriatric assessments in the emergency department with a view of reducing hospital admissions and improving outcomes for frail older patients. Kia ora, Vicky, and welcome to the podcast. All right, good morning. So today we're discussing frailty and why it's important to recognise it. With that in mind, is there an informal definition of frailty? So the short answer is yes. A lot of work has gone into trying to define frailty to make it more identifiable. So the first time it was really mentioned was actually in The Lancet in 2013 by Andrew Clegg. And he described it as a cumulative decline in multiple physiological systems over a lifespan. So this results in a state of vulnerability and a poor resolution of homeostasis following a stressor of some type. So, for example, you have an increasingly vulnerable state. So if the person or the patient suffers an injury or illness, it's much harder to get back to where they were. So even seemingly minor stresses to you and I will often trigger disproportionate changes in health status. So this could be something as small as a medication change or minor surgery, minor infection, or even a fall. And the key point is that it can alter someone's status quite significantly. So it can change the mobile into immobile. It can change an independent person into being dependent on others. It can change somebody who is posturally stable normally to being prone to falling over. And it can change those people who are perhaps quite lucid normally to being quite delirious. When we talk about sort of it affecting multiple physiological systems, what we mean is it affects the brain, it affects the endocrine system, it affects the immune system, and it affects the muscles. And there's been two different models of frailty that have been proposed. So there's a phenotype model, which is more than three out of five of the following, which is unintentional weight loss, exhaustion, low energy expenditure, slow gait speed, and weak grip strength. And the other model is one of a cumulative deficit. So it's almost like a frailty index or a score based on the presence of various symptoms, signs, and abnormal blood tests and disease status, and also disabilities. So for example, the more you have wrong with you, the more likely you are to be frail. I think one of the key points just to kind of stress here is that not everybody becomes frail. It's not a normal part of aging. It's actually an acceleration of a decline in reserve. So not every older person is frail and not every frail person is older. Thank you. So thinking about diagnosing frailty, is there a tool that we should be considering when we're thinking about this? I would say yes. There's a lot of helpful tools out there. I think the main thing to emphasize is that frailty isn't just about looking frail. So you can't just look at somebody and say they're frail. It's much more complicated than that. 
So for example, somebody could have a BMI of 40 and be frail. So it's not always the sort of low BMI patients that we tend to think about as being frail. And the other thing just to emphasize is that the tools that we use to diagnose or measure the severity of frailty are only as good as the comprehensive geriatric assessment that goes along with that. So it's really important that the comprehensive geriatric assessment is done prior to using any particular scale for frailty. So frailty scales, such as the clinical frailty scale, that's quite well known because it's quite easy to use and it's quite rapid and it's pictorial as well. So that just measures the severity of frailty. So you need to really be identifying whether someone is frail first. So the clinical frailty scale is quite a useful measure of severity that's based on mobility and function and cognition. And that's based on usually how they are in the community or how they were two weeks prior to an acute presentation. Because remember, we can't assess frailty appropriately when somebody's acutely unwell. It's used in the over 65s. It's quite rapid and easy to use. And it measures mild to moderate frailty as being a score of four to six, more advanced frailty being more sort of seven to eight. So it categorizes it numerically. There's also other ways of recognizing frailty. So we can recognize frailty syndromes. So if a patient is having falls or a reduction in their mobility or having episodes of delirium or incontinence, or if they're susceptible to side effects of medication. So for example, they get confused when they take codeine or they get hypotensive when they take blood pressure medication, that should also raise the suspicion of whether this patient is frail. There's other questionnaires as well. So there's the Prisma 7 questionnaire, which looks at sort of seven items. And if you score more than three out of those, that would mark you as being frail. And that's quite useful for general clinicians to use. You can also look at somebody's walk speed and their timed up and go, which is, again, quite a simple assessment to do. And also whether they have polypharmacy, so more than five medications. And those sort of factors would also flag somebody as needing further, further look into whether they could have frailty. One of the most useful tools that came out for primary care use was actually the electronic frailty index. And this sort of uses a cumulative deficit model and calculates frailty index based on sort of read codes on the computer. So the benefit of that is it doesn't necessarily require clinical review. So it could quite helpfully screen a larger population, but it obviously doesn't take the place of a clinical review. Perfect. Thank you for that. So Vicky, tell us, should we be screening for frailty in primary care? This is an interesting question because up until a few years ago, the recommendation that is that we shouldn't be screening the general population. But more recently, there has been suggestion brought forward that we should be screening more of the population than we do, um, generally because of the prevalence of frailty. So obviously, we have an ageing population. But the prevalence is roughly 10% of people over the age of 65 will be frail. And then anywhere between 25 and 50% of the over 85s will be living with frailty. So it's quite a large um, number when we think about our demographic, depending on the area you live in. And the other thing to mention is that GPs are actually excellent and highly skilled at providing a person-centered model of care. So actually, they would be 
excellent clinicians to be able to incorporate this and, and to detect frailty. I think there's lots of justifications for the screening for frailty. And what I would say is we should certainly be doing it during patient encounters. So every encounter that a healthcare professional is having with a patient, we should be screening for frailty. And there's lots of reasons for that. So frailty is often not recognised till a person presents in crisis. So this often leads to a hospital admission and that leads to worse outcomes for the patient. It's also really important to identify frail patients with regards to healthcare planning. So for example, if you're thinking about starting a new medication or referring a patient for a procedure, it's important to recognise frailty so that we can incorporate weighing up risks and benefits and allowing the patient and the family to make informed choices. Because if we don't identify frailty here, patients can be harmed by such interventions. And it's also allowing us to do a proactive review of social aspects of care. So looking at mood, medication, health, advanced care planning, and blood tests. And we know that interventions based on comprehensive geriatric assessment that's delivered to old people in the community can actually increase the likelihood of that patient continuing to live at home. So that's really important, not only for the patient, but for the healthcare system. And it allows us a window of opportunity to discuss the patient's wishes for the future. So everyone's getting older and it allows patients to think about their health in the future, their potential place of care about allocating power of attorneys and discussing advanced care plans. And this is to make sure that we're enacting what these patients want rather than doing things reactively when things happen. We can also identify and flag these patients at a higher risk of admission to hospital so that there's perhaps a lower threshold for a review in the community, even in the event of a minor illness, to make sure we give them both that medical and that social support that they need that might prevent a hospital admission. Those are excellent points. Thank you. So thinking about frailty, you mentioned outcomes. So what do we know about the outcomes when somebody becomes frail? So frailty in itself is a condition and we know that it's the most important determinant of health outcomes, more so than age or comorbidity. So frail patients are more likely to have increased home care needs. They have higher rates of admission to hospital. And they also have high admission rates to long-term care, rest home care or, or hospital level of care. And when people have previously looked at the electronic frailty indexes, and those with higher scores on that have a six times increased risk of admission to a care home in the subsequent 12 months. And they also have a five times higher mortality compared to a similar fit older person. We have to think about other outcomes as well. So I'm quite interested in perioperative medicine and CGA on patients before they have their operation. And when we look at the surgical outcomes, we know that preoperative frailty is associated with higher postoperative adverse events. So that's both in-hospital mortality, 30-day mortality, and also post-op complications. And there's also a lot of emerging evidence about patients showing regret of having operations, perhaps because they haven't done the shared decision making beforehand. And those patient-centered outcomes are really important to consider. There's a lot of data that came out of COVID as well. So we know that, you know, COVID itself 
was the big thing, but could be classed as a stressor which affected people differently. You know, some people it affected them in a minor way, others in a major way. But even frail patients who were affected by COVID in a minor way, by the the COVID itself and the respiratory symptoms, there was a huge increase in mortality in frailer patients as an independent risk factor. There was an increase in length of stay in hospital, and there was a higher increase in delirium and morbidity after that as well. So that's just circling back to the point about how we have to think about anything that's going to happen in the future to these patients has such a significant and disproportionate impact on them. You mentioned frailty may be reversible. So I wonder what factors can be reversed and how practically in primary care we can do this. Sure. It's always a tricky one and it's always something that everybody is continuing to look into. There's a lot of research still going on into this and there's a lot of research trials that have tried and succeeded. So frailty is a condition and like any condition, it can be made better or worse by a number of factors. There's been a lot of research into whether nutritional interventions make any difference. Some studies suggested that protein supplementation could make a difference, but actually those trials unfortunately weren't significant statistically. There's been a lot of research into pharmacological agents. So there were several trials into ACE inhibitors and metformin and its impact on sarcopenia. And there's been nothing terribly conclusive that's come of that. What we do know is that exercise interventions can be beneficial. So that's the one thing that has shown some reversible elements of frailty. So strength and balance training in particular can help and can improve mobility and also improve a patient's functional ability, which can improve where they're at on that frailty scale. We also know that in terms of practical measures, that proactively putting support systems into place can also help delay any advancement of frailty. So getting the right physiotherapy assessments and occupational therapy assessments, referring patients to podiatry if necessary, making sure they've had a dietitian review, involving old age psychiatry if there's a mood or a cognitive element to it. And all those aspects can actually perhaps delay the progression. What we do know is that there's greater reversibility in the pre-frail population than the more advanced frail. So it's really getting those patients and it's picking up those patients at that point where they're not noticeably frail that's really important. So I was just wondering about de-prescribing in the frail older adult. Is there a good rationale to do this? And if so, what medication should we consider and how should we de-prescribe? So my answer is always yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Really, really important to review medications and aim to de-prescribe. So we really should be doing sort of an annual review of medications with each frail patient or reviewing every time we have an encounter with somebody who is frail. And that, that applies both to primary care it applies to both pharmacists and it applies to also when patients have a hospital admission, we should be doing that during that stay as well. So we know that with what we class as inappropriate medications, in frail patients particularly, there's an increased risk of adverse drug reactions, there's an increased risk of falls and an increased risk of hospitalisation and in fact death. 
there's studies that have been done that have showed a positive impact of deprescribing on clinical outcomes, including mood, function and frailty. And there's been some mixed findings on, on the impact on falls and cognition. So there is a bit of a paucity of evidence, but we have to take that in the context of not many trials are run on this with this population group. And that's the reason why. There was actually some research published in Age and Aging, which is the journal of the British Geriatric Society. And this was published this month, just two days ago, I think, by uh, Dr. Janet Sluggett, who's a pharmacist and research fellow in South Australia. And it showed that getting a medicines review six to 12 months after entering a care home was linked with a 4.4% lower risk of death over 12 months. So that's really important data coming through. There's also, so there's lots of tools to be able to do this. It's not quite as easy as just crossing off medications um, off somebody's drug chart or, or medication chart. But there's lots of helpful tools out there to help people to do this if you're unsure where to start. So the most common one that's used and the most useful one, in my opinion, is the stop start tool. And so it's the screening tool of older person's prescriptions, screening tool to alert doctors to the right treatments. And that just looks at a whole variety of medications and the reasons why patients might be on them and the reasons why maybe they shouldn't be on them. And it's really helpful. There's the American Geriatric Society beers list, which is also quite commonly known, but I don't use that very often because we have the stop start. Um, and there's also the anticholinergic burden scale, which I find really useful. It tells you about the anticholinergic effect of lots of different medications, many of which you wouldn't expect to have that impact. And it's useful to just go through. Obviously, we know that anticholinergic burden in frail patients is bad. It causes falls. It causes cognitive decline. It leads to advancing frailty. So there's lots of tools out there to help guide. And it's just a case of reviewing not only whether the patient is taking, so we have to check whether the patient's taking these medications anymore because many patients stop them of their own accord because they don't feel like they agree with them. So it's checking they're actually taking them, asking whether they um, have any side effects with them, asking whether also they feel any benefit to them. So I come across many patients who are on oxybutynin for stress incontinence. And actually, when you ask them, they say that it's not made any difference to their symptoms. So there's absolutely no point in that patient being on that medication that's going to have the anticholinergic burden. So it's just a case of going through every single medication that the patient is on at a given opportunity and just making sure that it's at the right dose, it's still appropriate for them, and that they're not getting side effects that outweigh the benefits as well. And just to emphasize, it doesn't need to be a general practitioner that does this because we all know how time pressured everybody is. So pharmacist reviews can be helpful as well. And there's a lot of pharmacists out there now who have an interest in frailty as a specialty, and they're incredibly helpful in helping us to kind of go through these medications and making sure things are still appropriate. It's a great point using the resources available to us when we're under time pressure. Thank you for adding that in. Thinking about trials now, there was a trial I understand that was done in your district health board on frailty and some really interesting results. Can you talk to us about this? Absolutely. So this was a trial um, run by Dr. Tim Frendon, who is a geriatrician here in Hawke's Bay. He's actually now retired, but has come back. He's given me permission to share this as it's not yet published. But he conducted a local study 
after the Kampila outbreak in 2016 in Havelock North, which is an area of Hawke's Bay. So there's a huge Kampila back to outbreak within a sort of residential village population. And he actually used this episode as a way of gathering data on the population as a whole. So he took 300 people. So he took 120 people who had Campylobacter. And then from that, he also gained 180 controls. And he looked at their outcomes over the next three years. And this was determined in relation to the degree of dependency for each individual at the time of the outbreak. So that was used as a substitute for frailty. So he looked at um, the risk of death and also their health demand. So the number of days they spent in hospital. And he also looked at their dependency as well. So the dependent people, so he classed the dependent people as those patients who were having help, external help, so care at least one times a day. So they weren't even sort of what we classed as markedly frail. They were still living independently, but they were getting some home help once a day at least. And their risk of death and the number of days in hospital was two to three times greater for the dependent people than the completely independent people. And interestingly, the mortality and the hospitalisation rates for those dependent individuals rose even further the year after Campylobacter, whereas it didn't change for independent people. So that just re-emphasises that cumulative decline that goes on in frailty. And over the next three years, dependent individuals who had had the Campylobacter stayed on average eight times longer in acute hospital care over the following year to three years than the independent people of a similar age and comorbidity. So again, it's just re-emphasizing the point that a small illness can actually have a huge impact on those patients who are frail, even after the illness has gone away. It can really knock them off that curve of being independent to suddenly being much more dependent and just not getting back to that baseline that they were at before. So it's really important because it's just emphasizing the demand that we are going to have in the future based on the number of frail patients in our population. I think in general practice, actually, we're privileged to see that in real life. And, you know, often with our older adults, particularly the frail ones, they get an illness and it takes them so long to come back and they may not even bounce back. So it's really interesting to have that data to support those observations that we see in day-to-day practice. So you mentioned health burden and that was something I was interested in too. So we do have an aging population and with this in mind, I wonder how we plan for the burden of frailty that we have to come with the next few decades. Tell me your thoughts on this question. I was talking to Tim about this, actually, and uh, it sort of feels a bit like a tidal wave <laughs> that most people can see coming, but but some people still don't see coming. And, and as geriatricians and as general practitioners, you can definitely see it coming and we can see it arriving already. And it's going to be a big issue. I think modern healthcare systems are largely organised around single system illness. That's just the way they've been modelled. And we need to really take an approach of having a more holistic viewpoint. So we need to make management of patients sort of more goal-orientated rather than disease-focused. And that applies to a lot more to sort of hospital care, I suppose, than general practice care. The most common presentations to ED now are frailty syndromes. So it's, it's not sick, sick patients. It's 
older, frailer patients who are falling, who are delirious, who have fluctuating mobility. And the worst place for these patients to be is in hospital. So we need to really look at being able to provide the support these patients need outside of hospital. We need to set up services that acknowledge frailty as well. We need to set up our services so that we have better outpatient reviews and we have preoperative clinics. We do a shared decision-making clinic here in Hawke's Bay, which I run alongside the anaesthetist, where we will see all sort of high-risk or frail patients before they have their operation. And we get an hour with each patient, which is really generous to do some shared decision making to make sure they are fully informed about what they're about to go into. And we said it before, so these patients have higher care needs in the community, higher long term care needs, higher hospital needs. So we need higher and an increase in social care. And I literally go on about this all the time. We need much more investment into social care, both in terms of care support within the home and also expanding our numbers of rest home care facilities and hospital level of care facilities to be able to support our patients. We really, really need, and I'm not sure about the status all over the country, but certainly here in Hawke's Bay, we have no intermediate care beds and we need those step up or step down beds to allow recuperation for these patients, like the ones you've just talked about. So those patients who have a minor illness that just take time to get better. And during that time, they're not quite functionally good enough to be independent at home. And the worst thing we can do is put these patients into a hospital level of care environment where they're never going to get better. And we really need these intermediate care beds to allow people that time because these patients need time to see if they're going to recuperate. And as you say, some of them won't but actually many of them will, and they stand the best chance by giving them this opportunity. We need to globally educate our patients and their families as well about frailty so they can make informed decisions about their health care and make advanced care plans. That's really important as well. And we need all staff members that are in patient contact to be identifying frailty and we should be training all our clinical staff to manage frailty appropriately. So we can't just rely on general practitioners or geriatricians to manage frail patients because they are the biggest numbers of our population. And all clinicians are going to be caring for frail patients. So everybody needs to be upskilled in managing frail patients. And the other thing, we need just need our systems to be able to share information better. It's a weakness globally. (laughs) This is not restricted to New Zealand. If we had systems that better shared information about an individual and about their healthcare planning, we'd be able to adequately support them better rather than just reactively as well. Yes, some very thought-provoking comments here. Thank you, um, Vicky, for those. So to conclude our podcast today, please, your take-home messages for our listeners. So the first one is that um, frailty is not a normal part of ageing, so it must be recognised, ideally at the pre-frail or the lesser frail stage for the greatest impact to be had. The second point is that in frail patients, minor stressors can alter life or care needs dramatically. So it's really important to recognise and manage these stresses or these illnesses accordingly and early. The third point is that frailty tools are only as useful as the comprehensive geriatric assessment performed alongside them. So you need to be doing both at the same time. 
Number four, um, so at every patient encounter, please take the opportunity to screen for frailty and to deprescribe if appropriate. And number five, please advocate locally and nationally for a healthcare system that aims to meet the needs of our frailer older patients rather than viewing them as a burden. Thank you, Vicky. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for having me. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please log them. You'll find the resources we've mentioned on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thank you, everyone, for listening.